This episode is brought to you by the Grace Enough podcast, where host Amber Cullum and her guests delve into hard truths and the unwavering grace of God while journeying in the kingdom of God here on earth. Listen every week at graceenoughpodcast.com or on your favorite listening app. Welcome to the Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to the Table, where we discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Mikel Del Rosario, Cultural Engagement Manager here at the Hendricks Center. And our topic today is why people leave the church. And we're going to be talking with a deconversion expert, my guest today, coming to us via Skype from sunshiny Southern California, is John Marriott. John, good to have you on the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah. John is the uh, Director of Global Leadership and Partnership at Biola there at the Cook School, uh, my alma mater. So good to see you and have you on the show. Um, I want to talk about this whole idea of deconversion. You've been called a deconversion expert. Uh, first of all, what is deconversion? And then how did you get interested in studying that? Yeah, it's, it's a little bit ominous to be known as a deconversion expert. Um, <laughs> but I guess I'll take the title. Um, I got interested because I was starting to work on a PhD here at Biola in intercultural studies, and I was looking at uh, something to do with Buddhism. And uh, I realized it was a challenge because it was almost an entire new language that I needed to learn, a whole way of looking at the world that I needed to educate myself in. And I had a conversation one night with a professor, and I was just sharing with him about a blog I had across, and it was about... Um, people who had left their faith. And I was amazed at how many people had posted their narratives online about how they were once Christians and now they no longer were. And she said that uh, that would make an incredible research project. Hmm. And I said, do you think that's something that I could do for my dissertation? And she said, I think that that would be great. And so I started to look into it and uh, became more intrigued. And uh, that's eventually how I uh, came to write my dissertation, and then continue doing more research in that area. Hmm. Did you have any personal experience with that? Like, was there a, a Christian that you knew who had, had deconverted? I did, um, and it was uh, it made a real impact on me. It was uh, in 1996, I was competing uh, for an NCAA Division One track and field program, and we had gone to Florida State to compete in the Florida State Relays. And I was doing the triple jump, which was my uh, event, but I was having a really difficult time. I was I was um, not meeting the expectations myself nor the university, and I uh, was feeling really dejected. And one day, one of my um, teammates came and said, "You'll never guess who's here." And it turned out that Jonathan Edwards, the world record holder in the triple jump from Great Britain, was at Florida State training. Hmm. And Jonathan Edwards was a, a hero of mine because he was the contemporary Eric Little. He had missed competing in an Olympics and in a world championship because of his conviction that he didn't want to compete on Sunday. Uh, a year earlier, he had broken the world record three times, and yet the British British press thought that uh, he was uh, more impressive for his uh, Christian testimony and the character of his life because they couldn't find any skeletons in his closet. Mm. And I was so impressed with with him, and he did my event. He would have been the one person that, if I could have talked to anybody in my struggle, it would have been it would have been him. And then providentially, here he is at the same track meet that 
I'm going to be at. And I, I went up and, and introduced myself. He invited me out for lunch. And uh, he told me about how he uh, wanted to go to Dallas Theological Seminary hmm. when he was done competing because he wanted to study Israelology. Uh, he wanted to do a systematic study on the nation of Israel. Several years later, I was uh, on the internet and I was uh, looking up Jonathan Edwards and wanted to know where he was now and what he was doing after he retired and came across an article that said that he was now an atheist. Hmm. And that really rocked my world. Wow. And um, that was probably in the background of uh, also why I decided that this would be uh, something to study. Mm -hmm. Well, you wrote your dissertation on the topic, and then you came out with a book called A Recipe for Disaster, which I have right here. And the subtitle is Four Ways, Four Ways Churches and Parents Prepare Individuals to Lose Their Faith and How They Can Instill a Faith That Endures. Be a little bit more specific about what you mean by um, those who lose their faith. How would you um, define that? Yeah, that's a really good question, and I appreciate you asking it. Um, so, in the book, I say that I'm coming at this from a more sociological perspective. I'm not coming at it from a theological perspective, mm -hmm. because there are two sides, of course, uh, as listeners will know, to the issue. Some people believe that a born-again believer in the family of God can lose their salvation or can apostatize, can reject what they once believed and walk away and go from being born again to um, someone who is reprobate. There are others who will say that this is impossible and that if you truly are born again that you will persevere to the end. I don't take a position on that in the book. What I do in the book is I interview people who once identified as Christians, and had a clear Christian testimony, that were very committed to their faith, that were positions of leadership, some were pastors, some were missionaries, and they came to the place where they no longer believed, they lost their faith, they felt as they couldn't uh, continue with intellectual integrity to affirm something that they no longer believed, and they, they walked away. Mm -hmm. And I think it's uh, important to say that regardless of whether these were folks who were once saved and lost their faith, or these are people um, who were never saved to begin with, the issues that I, I raise in the book are issues that I think that people of both theological persuasions uh, need to hear, because even if you can't lose your faith, these kinds of issues are that, that set people up for a crisis of faith uh, inflict all kinds of people, even if it's not possible for one to lose their faith. And so regardless of where one comes down on the issue, I think that um, the four ways that I lay out in the book are valuable um, for both sides there. Mm -hmm. So in your study, how large of a of a issue is this in America? We hear statistics like, you know, 50% of Christian kids who leave the church will, you know, who go to college will walk away. And what, what are the stats that you've actually uncovered that, that are substantiated? Yeah, it's, it, it's always hard to know exactly because the stats are never the same. And there's lots of uh, people who are reporting on this from the Southern Baptist to the uh, Assemblies of God, Lifeway, UCLA, Fuller. Um, all of them have, have different numbers, but they're all pointing in the same direction. Uh, for example, the Southern Baptist Convention a number of years ago said that between 70 and 88 percent of their young people will leave the faith and not return. Uh, the Southern Baptist Council has said that uh, 88 percent of their young people by the time they're 18 leave the church. 
Hmm. Uh, Barna has reported that 61% of young adults who are now disengaged from the church once were very committed. As teenagers, the Assemblies of God uh, say that 67% of uh, their young people who attend a public university will leave their faith after four years. The Fuller Youth Project says that between 40 and 50% of young people who leave university or who leave high school and go on to college struggle to retain their faith. Uh, Lifeway says that 70% of uh, young people leave their faith after college and only 35% of those return. And UCLA did a nationwide study several years ago asking freshmen uh, what they identified as their religious uh, identification. And of those who checked born again, by the time they left university four years later, 59% of them did not check born again hmm. at the end of their university experience. And so it's it's always difficult to know what the difference is between someone who says, I was a Christian and I'm no longer a Christian, or I'm just leaving the church. Um, but all of the, the all of the studies point in the same direction, that this is becoming a significant problem. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So... Of course, God knows people's hearts. We don't know people's hearts. And so you're looking at this from a, a sociological uh, perspective of people who were active in church, people who had a, a Christian testimony, as far as uh, human beings can tell, um, who now no longer identify as Christian. Now, for those who, who have moved out of the church, have left the church, now identify as not Christian, um, is the, is the, are most of them atheists, agnostics? Are there other worldviews or religions that they gravitate towards? Yeah, it's hard to tell. Uh, certainly, we see an increase in those who would identify as nuns, the N-O-N-E kind of nun, that say, I no longer have any religious perspective. Now, in that group, there can be uh, people who are agnostic and who say that there might be a God, but I just don't really know. Then there would be others who would say, I definitely don't believe in the existence of God, and still others who would say, I don't uh, possess that belief that God exists. And so there's kind of a wide range of folks in the category of none, but that category is is definitely growing as we become uh, a part of a Christian secular culture. So I, I don't see a I don't see an increase in other world religions amongst those who are leaving Christianity. They typically leave and say, I, I just don't think that there's anything that there's really anything here. So I, I don't identify as any kind of um, religious person. Hmm, that's interesting. I talked to a, an ex-Jehovah's Witness recently who says this is a growing problem amongst um, people who are leaving the Jehovah's Witnesses as well, because they are taught that all the churches on earth are false, except for the Watchtower. When they find out the Watchtower is false, then they say, well, I guess I'm going to be an atheist now. I'm going to be an agnostic because sure. there's no sense checking out other churches because they're all false. Um, so right. yeah, this is a, a problem that I've that I've found as well, um, even amongst amongst groups like that, like Jehovah's Witnesses, um, uh, people who, who deconvert from that don't look at other religions. They just they just go to atheism or agnosticism. Now, on your the cover of your book, there's a wooden spoon, and it's very interesting that you have a wooden spoon on the front of, of your book, and it's called A Recipe for Disaster. You use this cooking metaphor in the book, which I thought was really unique. Um, explain to us a little bit about what that, what you mean by that. What is the recipe for disaster? Yeah, the recipe for disaster is is my attempt to to try and give a holistic approach and understanding to the loss of faith. And 
many times people will say, oh, you, you are interested in why people leave the faith. What's the reason why people leave their faith? And I don't think that it's that simple. It's not, it's not as easy as to say that there's just one reason or a mm-hmm. predominant reason. Mm-hmm. I think that there are, just like in a recipe, there are ingredients, there's a preparation, and there's a cooking environment. I think there's something similar going on in uh, loss of faith, that there are certain ingredients, and those would be the personality traits, the values, the psychological makeup that people bring to the deconversion process. There is a preparation in the same way that we take ingredients to bake a cake and we prepare them a certain way. Uh, People are prepared and socialized into their religious background or into their Christian world. And then there's a cooking environment where you take all of those ingredients that have been prepared a certain way, you put them into an oven or a microwave or a deep fryer, and uh, at the end, you should get a, you know, a, a product like a cake or something like that. Mm-hmm. And our, our culture is the cooking environment. So when you take an individual who, who checks off enough boxes on what I would call like a deconversion profile, and you prepare them in a particular kind of way that I would identify as a poor preparation uh, methodology, and then you send them out into our world that is becoming more secular and uh, much more difficult, I think, to to maintain a robust Christian faith in, uh, that would be the recipe for mm. disaster. And in the book, I say you can't control much of the ingredients, the personality traits and the temperament of someone. You can't do much about the culture that we live in, but we really can do a better job, I think, of preparing people well to live in the culture that we find ourselves in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting, the cooking metaphor. Now, for those who are watching the video, you have a shirt that says cook on it. That's the Cook School of Intercultural Studies. It has nothing at all to do with cooking. Uh, correct. That, that's, yes. <laughs> that's from uh, Dr. Clyde Cook. Is that correct? Correct. Who is the president of Biola at one point in time. And uh, his son, actually, Dr. Uh, Craig Cook, was my Bible teacher at Faith Academy in the Philippines, where I grew up. And that's uh, that's one way I learned about the school. Um, but yeah, no no relationship to the... But do you like to cook yourself? Uh, no, I'm not a good cook at all. <laughs> so when you think about these uh, all the ingredients, you say there's a kind of profile that certainly doesn't guarantee that somebody's going to walk away. But um, in your study, you've seen these kinds of traits are, are prevalent amongst those who do... What, what are some of those traits? In the, in the literature, um, and I'm talking about like the academic literature, you'll find lots of articles uh, in the last five or six years that identify the kind of personality traits that seem to be predominant among those people who uh, leave religious traditions. Mm. And I, I, I appreciate how you phrased it, is that there's never a guarantee that just because someone has these sets of characteristics that they will leave, but there is a statistical predominance, or is there a statistical likelihood that says if you have these in a robust number, then um, yeah, you are more likely to really wrestle with your faith and to maybe struggle with it and then walk away. And so one of them would be open to experience. And this is one of the big five personality types that psychologists say that you are particularly born with and almost last uh, throughout your entire life. And then a person who's open to experience would be someone who is interested in learning about new things, who wants to hear the other side of an argument, who, if there is uh, someone from a different worldview or religion giving a talk down at the student union, they're interested in going to hear about it. Skydiving, let's go give it a try, right? So anything that's new and, and that they can have a new experience from or learn something from, people who are open to experience uh, and score high in that also are people who tend to um, 
lean towards deconverting. Others would be having a low tolerance for an authoritarian style of leadership, being told mm -hmm. what you need to do, being mm -hmm. told how you have to think, uh, particularly if that is in, inclined to be more on the right side of the spectrum of political beliefs and, uh, and, and a right-wing kind of authoritarian leadership style. There would be a uh, high sense of self-determination that many of these uh, folks have. There's a, a, a um, professor in Hong Kong named Harry Hui who has come out with a study looking at a number of uh, several hundred Chinese converts who came to know the Lord, who lived as Christians for a while, and then left the faith. And he followed these folks as a cohort, about 600 of them, and he, and, and he surveyed them before they ever became Christians. So out of the 600 he surveyed, um, he followed those who became Christians all the way through until they ended up no longer identifying as Christians. And one of the things that many of them had in common was that they had a high sense of self-determination, which meant that they needed to be in control, that they needed to um, uh, be the captain of their own ship, that they didn't want anyone else telling them how to live. And that's fascinating to me because it seems like that was a character trait they had before they became Christians, while they were Christians, and when they left the faith. Uh, university educated is another one, people who have at least one year of university education, uh, scoring lower in benevolence and uh, the care and concern for others, and then being uh, particularly analytical and maybe being a little bit above average in intelligence and looking at things from uh, a more analytical perspective. All of those character traits are ones that people who have left the faith seem to score high in hmm. to varying degrees. Hmm. And then you talk about the environment when you when you have um, that kind of a person in an environment where you talk about being uh, overprepared. Explain what, what you mean by that, how the church can sometimes over-prepare people for engagement with the broader culture. Over-preparation is a term that I use for really well-meaning and sincere uh, folks who misunderstand and mistake their particular view or take or version of Christianity for Christianity itself, mm -hmm. and then say that to be a real or genuine Christian, you must accept and affirm all of this or nothing at all. It's mm -hmm. kind of an ultimatum. And, and if you don't accept all of it, then you're really not being a true follower of Jesus, because a true follower of Jesus believes the Bible, and this is what the Bible teaches. Mm -hmm. And it, it is this massive raft of beliefs where, the, where secondary and tertiary beliefs get mm -hmm. elevated to the primary. And what ends up happening is, and, and, and I think that you've identified this even with your Jehovah's Witness friend uh, that has left their faith, is that folks don't often think that maybe there are other perspectives out there that they can go to if they don't find this perspective of Christianity to be one that they can buy into. Now, I, I think that we always need to set the Bible up as our ultimate and final criterion for truth, but what happens in being overprepared is when doctrines get elevated to the essential level, and it's like a house of cards, and if you pull out one of those cards, the whole house will collapse. Mm -hmm. And some of those doctrines that people are told to believe, and, and that if they're going to be true Christians that they have to affirm, are ones that are really challenging and practices that are very narrow. Hmm. And so in, in well-meaning, well-intentioned parents and church leaders passing on their faith often pass on way more than what is the essentials of Christianity and make yeah. it something that becomes a burden for them to bear. Mm -hmm. So confusing the... Uh 
secondary and tertiary things with, with essential things or elevating those things or confusing an interpretation of the text with the text itself. Yes. Um, then leads people to say, well, hey, if, you know, I was raised a uh, young earth creationist and I've come to believe that that's no longer uh, a viable uh, belief and I, I believe something else, well, I guess all Christianity is false then. Jesus didn't rise from the dead and there is no God. Um, so is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. That is the primary example that I hear from people. Now, I think that young earth creationism is a is a eminently justifiable biblical position. And so I'm not saying anything negative about that. But what I would say would be when you make that a fundamental, essential element of the faith that must be true, mm-hmm. because if it's not, then it becomes the one Jenga block on the on the that's holding up the rest of the tower. And and I've heard this statement made by uh, good folks in the Young Earth Creationist movement that says if Genesis is not a literal six-day, 24-hour creation period, then it is the foundation for the rest of the Bible. And if that foundation is gone, then the rest of the Bible also goes with it. And so all that needs to happen is for folks to get to the place where they say, I just don't think that that's true anymore. And if it's not true, then the rest of the Bible can't be true either. And so what am I left with? I'm left with either, uh, you know, I have no intellectual integrity and I keep trying to affirm something that I don't believe in anymore, or I have to have intellectual integrity and say, I just don't, I can't believe it anymore. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So they, they don't realize that there are other interpretations or other ways that they might understand the text that are broader, that are different, that are more flexible. Mm-hmm. So when you say overprepared, you mean it's kind of Christianity's essentials plus something else. Yes. And the, if that if that tertiary or secondary thing turns out to be uh, something they're not convinced of anymore, um, then they begin to, to question their faith and, and, and leave their faith. What yes. about the idea of uh, under-preparing people in the church? What did you mean by that? I, I think under-prepared is when we fail to, to really understand the power and the impact that our culture has that we live in and the difference that exists between it and the world of the Bible. There seems to be uh, almost a sense of vertigo amongst many people who left the faith in trying to reconcile their understanding of the text of the Bible with the contemporary world. Uh, the Bible is a world is a book that's enchanted. It has all kinds of what we would consider, many people would consider today, mythical kinds of, of creatures. Um, where there's talk of Leviathan, there are talking snakes, there's Samson uh, killing a a thousand people with the jawbone of a donkey. There's all these fantastic stories, and yet we live in a world that is completely disenchanted. We don't live in a world where we appeal to God for uh, why uh, a drought happens, or we don't look for necessarily for, for miracles in our world. We look to the scientific, to the technological, And in almost every area of our life, we are continually growing in every academic discipline that that we study. So you start in kindergarten learning what the numbers are, and then by the time you're done your education at university, if you're good enough, you you could do enough math to send a rocket into space and bring it back. Same thing with physics and the same thing with history, the same thing with with all the other disciplines. But unfortunately, when it comes to the Bible, Almost all of our understanding gets left at an elementary school kind of a level. Mm-hmm. And it's very difficult to reconcile on Sunday 
um, hearing about Adam and Eve and naked people and a talking snake in a garden, and then going off to UCLA on Monday and talking about mapping the human genome and how we're going to make cell phone technology even faster as we beam our voice invisibly out into space and bring it back. How do we bring these two worlds together in a way that it doesn't seem like there is a, a massive disconnect? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so there's there's genre issues, there's worldview issues um, that people have to um, have to wrestle with, and sometimes we're not preparing them for that. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by the Grace Enough podcast. I am its host, Amber Cullum. Each week, I sit down with a guest to discuss hard truths and the unwavering grace of God they've experienced while journeying in God's kingdom here on earth. You'll hear from guests like Jen Wilkin, Jamie Ivey, Andy Crouch, and Scott McKnight. Listen to these conversations and more by searching Grace Enough Podcast on your favorite listening app or by visiting graceenoughpodcast.com. Okay, then you also talk about people who are ill-prepared and how we're ill-preparing people. What's the difference there? Uh, The difference would be uh, ill-prepared is when People have, and I use the phrase in the book that they're they're kind of half baked, and a half baked uh, individual is one who has uh, half the truth, but maybe not all of the truth. They've been given some information that's correct, but not all of the information, and it's not a well formed biblical conception that they have, and that leads to a set of expectations and assumptions that often are unfulfilled. An example would be. Uh, it would be uh, the concept that many believers would have of who God is. And they would know that God is loving and that they would know that God is good and that God is kind. And yet he allows very difficult things to come into their life. And when they have lived for him and they have tried to serve him and they've given their life for him, and then they say, well, wait a minute, why is this happening to me? Why is my child getting sick? Or why am I going through this financial uh, problem where I'm losing my home? They say, this is not what I expected. This is not really the God that I mm-hmm. was serving. Is this what I can expect from God? And the crisis of faith comes because there's a set of assumptions and expectations they have that God doesn't fulfill because the concept that they have of him has not been rounded out and fleshed out in, in a robustly biblical way. Hmm. And so maybe even reading um, difficult parts of the Bible that, that weren't covered in, in Sunday school or from the pulpit um, give people a little bit of a, a, a worldview shock saying, well, I thought God was all loving. How could he be angry in this passage? How could he uh, wipe out these people? Um, how much of the problem of evil, would you say, and suffering that like you were mentioning, how much of that really plays into the deconversion story of a lot of people that you've, you've talked to? It, it plays in in two ways. One is intellectual. And the intellectual problem of evil, I think, primarily is now focused on the problem of God in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think that we see in the response of people like Pete Enns and Greg Boyd and others, um, the evangelical world has, has recognized that um, the outside world uh, has exposed many in the church to these terror texts and some of the darker passages of the Old Testament that in the past we've either maybe ignored or skipped over or just have said, well, we're not really sure how to deal with this, but 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 we just trust God. Where I think people like Dawkins and Hitchens and Sam Harris 
have really brought that to the fore. And now young people uh, especially are saying, I didn't realize that this was in there. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize that, you know, Jephthah offered his daughter up as a sacrifice and God didn't stop it and that God annihilated the Canaanites. And unfortunately, the word genocide gets misapplied to that mm-hmm. passage quite often. And and so there's this intellectual problem with uh, the problem of evil because they see it as uh, almost, uh, it's you can, it can't never be justified. So we have to figure out a way around around that intellectually for, for the problem of evil, For some people will say. The emotional problem of evil is the one where, where uh, is maybe a, a, bit, a bit more uh, common, is that, yeah, like, why would you believe in, in a good God and a loving God when you stop and think about all of the tragedy that happens in the world, especially when it comes home to you? And it really, you know, impinges on your life. Because if this is supposed to be the good God of the universe who who deeply loves us, then why does he let these bad things happen? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You, you mentioned the, this idea of false reciprocity in um, this idea that, well, I've been living for God, and why is this happening to me? Uh, we see that in Job, for example. We see that even with, uh, you know, Paul's life. And yet a lot of believers um, sometimes struggle with that uh, you know, when it's your own personal self versus reading it in the Bible, or even if you have read those passages and understand, uh, when it's your own personal self, uh, that's an emotional problem that sometimes uh, makes people question their faith and walk away. Uh, what would you say then uh, churches can do to help people better be prepared for those kinds of existential crises? Well, one way I think is that we need to do a, a, a a better job of setting uh, expectations and by um, and by really pointing out that throughout the Bible you find God's people, some of God's all-stars like Jeremiah and the Apostle Paul going through some really, really difficult experiences. Mm-hmm. Not just experiences at the hands of others, because I think that that's one way we can say hey, I, I at least feel like I'm suffering for righteousness sake here, or I'm being persecuted because I'm, I'm following Jesus. But there are lots of things that happen uh, in the life of the Apostle Paul, where if I was him, I think that I would be very frustrated w- with God. Because there are some things that you would think that God could have intervened in his life and spared him from that are outside of the the, the will of, of, of agents who are opposed to him. So, for example, he says, I spent three days and three nights in the deep. If I was, you know, living for God the way the Apostle Paul was, I would sort of expect that maybe he would get me out of sitting in the water for three days and three nights. And mm-hmm. he tells Timothy to bring a cloak to him uh, in prison because he's cold, mm-hmm. right? Uh, these are just small things, but there are lots of inconveniences and hardships that God's people go through that are in the text, and that Jesus even says, I tell you these things in advance so that when they happen that your faith won't fail, John 16. Mm-hmm. I think that we need, especially as it becomes more difficult to live a, a, a full public Christian life in the United States, I think that it's helpful to uh, highlight those things that God's people are not immune to suffering and hardship and that he does not always intervene and that he does not necessarily owe us anything because we have been faithful to him for X many years. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, though the Bible is very, very real when it comes to evil and suffering, and Jesus does say, in this life you will have trouble. Not the favorite, you know, Bible memory verse people like to crochet on their baby's blankets, but yeah, but the Bible is very, very real when it comes to that. Um, well, how what would you say, I'm thinking about some of our viewers and listeners now, what would you say to a Christian parent who has a high schooler, who has maybe a, a first-year college student, who says, hey, we raised our child in the faith, they believe the Christian worldview is true, and they just don't want to be Christian anymore. They just don't want to be a part of the Christian life. Um, how would you counsel a parent to begin um, to engage their, their child that way? Parents are the most influential people when it comes to retaining faith. Um, that's that's not disputed by by anyone. Uh, not, a number of studies show that friends are important and have an influence. Um, people in church have an influence. People outside of the faith have an influence. But the the people who have the greatest influence on whether young people will retain their faith are are parents. And so I think that what I would say to somebody who is in that situation would be to be very patient. And to listen really well, because often it is easy to assume that it's an apologetic issue. Mm -hmm. And I am convinced that it is less an apologetic issue, and it is more of a cultural value issue. What I mean by that is Jonathan Haidt has written a, a, a book, he is, he by his own definition or his own self-description is an agnostic Jew liberal. So he says, I, you know, I don't, I'm not a Christian, I'm not a theist, and he teaches at NYU. And, and he has argued that when it comes to many of the disagreements that we have over religion and politics, that we tend to think that the arguments are going on at this level up here, at the sort of the cognitive level of mm -hmm. the reason level. He says, no, they generally are anchored in some deep value. Yeah, and it's that value where you need to uh, you need to get down to and find out wh what it is that young people are finding so distasteful about the Christian worldview or the Christian life or living as a Christian, and that value is often the result of and has been embedded in them by the culture that we live in. I had a student uh, ask me. Uh, if he could talk to me once after a talk I gave about Christmas. And I said, sure. And I thought we were going to talk about Christmas or something like that. And, and he said, can I talk to you about homosexuality? And I said, sure. And, and he said, so, and he pointed to his head and he said, up here, I know that the Bible says it's wrong and I believe that it's wrong. Then he said, but down here, and he pointed to his stomach. He said, I, I just don't, know how I can say that because I don't feel that it's wrong. I think that it's intolerant and I think that it's unfair and I think that it is suppressing people's right to be who they are. So for him, the issue wasn't what he intellectually thought, it was this value that he had embedded in him and that has come directly from the culture that he's a part of. Hmm. I would encourage parents who are in a situation like this to really listen well, to try and engage to not immediately jump to try and solve the problem and answer the questions, but to listen and to love and to pray and to mo continually model their faith well. Mm -hmm. 
How much does disappointment with God play into uh, the deconversion stories that you've worked with in your study? It's it's hard to know. That's a good question because if you listen to enough deconversion stories long and, and, and you listen long enough and you hear people talk about their disappointment with God, you start to wonder whether or not they have actually become either atheists or agnostics, or they are just, and I, I mean this sensitively, uh, uh, throwing almost an adult temper tantrum, where they still believe in God, but they're very angry with him, and they're not going to give him what he wants, which is maybe worship or acknowledgement. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that disappointment with God plays a big role in that because they feel a sense of betrayal from God. They expected that he would provide them with a spouse or that he would Mm -hmm. give them their job or that because they had sacrificed and gone to the mission field for them, for God, and and had given their life for him, that God would give them the child that they always desired. And when God doesn't do that, they feel like, you know, I'm kind of angry at you and and maybe you're not really there. Mm Now, would it be any different if you were uh, talking to, there are a number of pastors who watch the show, who listen to the show, if you were talking to a pastor who is concerned about somebody on their staff or even um, themselves working in the church um, who are kind of wrestling with this and, and considering leaving the, the church, um, difficult as it is because they just can't believe anymore, what would you say to them? Well, the first thing I would do is I would uh, listen, re- I try and listen really well. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second thing I would do is I would sympathize with them because I, I think it does, I don't think it does anyone any good to put up a false front of um, of exaggerated confidence. So, for example, while I am I think that there is enough reasons for a hope worth acting on, I don't have absolute certainty or a hundred percent confidence that what I have committed my life to is is true in some sort of with some apodictic certainty. Right? I think that faith is being able to have uh, enough reasons to act on and, and, and to continue to go forward in a, more of a, in a trust kind of a manner. So I would, I would want to hear where they're coming from and I would be able to, I, I would want to empathize with them in, in that struggle. Um, I would also say that it's probably important to, to, to step back and maybe to evaluate and to ask some important questions like what are some of my assumptions? What are some of my expectations that I have and are they reasonable? Another question I would ask would be how much of the doubts and the questions that I have are, are a product of the culture that I live in and that may not necessarily be good objections or good doubts, but they seem that way because of the culture uh, that I'm a part of. And third, I would I would maybe uh, hope that they would ask questions like, is there another way that I can still be a Christian? And an example that I'm thinking of is a young man who grew up in a very charismatic environment, saw lots of what he came to believe were not genuine experiences of the Holy Spirit. It was very fundamentalist. He was told that he needed to be separate from the world, and there were many practices that he couldn't engage in, like dancing or any imbibing in any alcohol. And he believed that that was Christianity. He didn't know any different. He thought that this was what it meant to be a Christian. Until he came across a more uh, reformed perspective on Christianity, one that engaged his mind, 
one that said that perhaps he was right in some of his evaluations of the excesses in his movement, and one that said you need to engage the world from a Christian perspective, and that you do need to get out and be a contributor to culture, and that being worldly doesn't look this way. That's what really rescued him and saved his faith, was thinking about being a Christian otherwise. Mm-hmm. And so I think that when I talk about being overprepared, that's one of the, the, the setbacks and problems of being overprepared. Uh, people need to have the, 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 the essentials grounded and then a faith that is flexible enough to be, able to, uh, to, to be able to question some of those issues that maybe they just don't think sit right with their understanding of the Bible. Mm-hmm. So how is doing this study for you, how has this impacted the way that you now speak to student groups and do ministry? It, it, has, it has helped me to clarify what's important. And I think that there is a difference between essential and important. Mm-hmm. I, I think that I, I, want to, uh, I really want to communicate the essentials of the faith. But I don't want to downplay that there are other important doctrines that aren't necessarily essential. I do think that as Christians, we need to um, honor the Lord by studying His Word and trying to understand what it does teach. But as I communicate to young people, what I try and communicate is I want to make sure I'm communicating the essentials. And I want to um, give them accurate concepts of what it means to truly believe in Jesus. I spoke with a woman who has been a missionary on on the mission field as a pastor. Uh, uh, Her and her husband were at a church out in California, here up in California, uh, for for years, probably 30 years, and uh, gave a talk about deconversion. And and I I mentioned that uh, belief is not necessarily being a psychological state of mind where you're certain about everything, but it's a committed trust experience where you think that there is enough information to to take that risk and 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 step into the arms of, of Jesus and follow him. And she came up afterwards in tears and I was shocked. And she said, I, I've never understood that before. I always thought that belief was meaning you had to be certain of what you believed. And if I wasn't certain that I wasn't really a good believer and maybe I wasn't a believer at all because mm-hmm. I questioned some of these these doctrines. And so I try and clarify that for people as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting uh, you say that because a lot of people think that doubt is the opposite of belief, when in fact, unbelief is the opposite of belief. And a lot of times when people doubt, um, they're kind of chewing on their faith, they're kind of mulling it over, and arguably, some people do leave the faith, but arguably, that's what helps some people get really serious about their faith. Um, I, I know in my life and in college, that's that's what happened to me, is just kind of mulling over, do I really believe this? And I think a lot of Christian students have to go through that, where for the first time they're out of their parents' house, am I going to go to church today or not? I don't have to. Nobody's making me, right? Um, we all have right. to come to those, um, those points in our lives where we, where we make our faith our own. Well, what's the number one takeaway that um, you got from, from doing your study? The number one takeaway was uh, surprising. And it was the, ended up being the title of my dissertation. And the title was The Cost of Freedom. Hmm. Because after, after listening to and interviewing an, uh, a lot of uh, people who are professed uh, former Christians and reading narratives online, and there are lots of narratives online, mm-hmm. and I would encourage people, if they feel as though they can, they can do so without it being too much of a stumbling block, to read some of those because it will help you get an idea of where people are often coming from. 
For some, it's really clear. You'll say, I don't think that this person really understood the gospel message. For others, it's not so clear. They were involved in full-time ministry for years. But the number one takeaway was that regardless of how difficult it was in losing their faith, in losing their community, in losing their identity, and losing their uh, metaphysical kind of map of reality, for almost every person that I interviewed, it was worth it, they said, because of the freedom that they found in shedding the Christian faith. Now, that should tell you something about what often motivates deconversion. Mm-hmm. It's a particular kind of Christian faith that doesn't match up with the words of Jesus, who says that, you know, I've come that they might have life and more life more abundantly. And if the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. And yeah. that my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Somewhere along the way, they were told and they were indoctrinated or, or, or uh, socialized into a version of Christianity that was burdensome, that uh, weighed them down, and that became intolerable. And um, that is sometimes the result of, of uh, an excess number of beliefs that they had to affirm. And sometimes it's... Uh, that combined with many practices that they either had to do or that they had to shun. And so when someone says that um, they feel they feel freer now than when they be, they came to Christ, that's a real red flag as to the kind of faith that they had, had mm. uh, bought into. Hmm. Well, can you tell us a story of uh, not only deconversion, but of someone who actually came back into the church after uh, a period of, of uh, wandering away? Yes, I, I can. And I'm glad that you asked that because— I'd rather end on a positive note than a than a than a depressing kind of a one. Uh, Darren Raspberry is uh, for the listeners is someone that they should look up because Darren is uh, a young man who was a believer and then uh, left the faith. Now, again, when I say believer, I say he identified as a believer. I'm not sure whether or not he was truly born again, but he would have said that he was a committed believer. Left the faith and then. If, and then moved into uh, not just a, a position of saying I'm a nun or I'm an agnostic. He was a very committed atheist. He was part of um, uh, a group called Debunking the Bible online. Hmm. Uh, John Loftus, who is also uh, someone who identifies as a, a former Christian and is now a very uh, strong antagonist towards Christianity, has written a number of books against the Christian faith and why people should leave the Christian faith, has a website called Debunking the Bible. And Darren worked for him for years. I believe it was about 15 years Hmm. that he was an online atheist apologist. But eventually he said that he came to the point where he could no longer, with integrity, uh, deny some of the things that he was uh, experiencing and coming across in his life, both academically, uh, intellectually, and emotionally, and, and, and uh, personally, and realized that maybe the story that makes the better sense of reality is not the one that he was living in now, but the one that he had left behind. And he revisited his Christian faith, and he started thinking about it more from a more of an academic, intellectual perspective, and eventually came to the place where he said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really pretty committed now to the idea that God exists. And I'm also pretty committed to the idea that he walked the earth in the person of Jesus. Hmm. Now, he will say, I'm not sure what I think about things like inerrancy and who all the authors of the Bible are, but he would now identify as a Christian and a genuine follower of Jesus once again. 
And he is one of a number of people who have left the faith and then have returned. And so I want to encourage listeners who know someone who has left the faith, have a family member who, have, who has left the faith, that um, there is a difference between Judas and Peter. Mm-hmm. Uh, Peter denied Jesus three times, and uh, eventually he's re- you know he returns. Judas doesn't. And people are like books. Until the last chapter is written, we really never know how they're going to end. And so I want to encourage uh, our listeners that uh, just because someone has moved away from their faith does not mean that that's the end of the story. Yeah, yeah. That's a great, great story. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, for those of us who have, we have people in our lives who we're praying for daily. Uh, I'd say don't give up. Keep praying for them. God hasn't given up on them, and God loves them more than we do. So thank you so much for taking the time to be with us on the show and sharing with us, John. Thank you. Oh, you're very welcome. I uh, appreciate it. And if anybody would like to get in touch with me, um, you can get in touch with me through my website, which is uh, www.johnmarriott.org, which is two R's and two T's, or www.losingmyfaith.org. And I'm happy to talk with people who are believers who are really wrestling with their faith and who are struggling and trying to maintain it. I resonate with that, and um, I can appreciate where they're coming from. And for those who are trying to think well about how we disciple and socialize the next generation into the faith so that they have a faith that endures, I'm also happy to engage uh, in conversations about that as well. All right. Well, thanks so much, John. And we thank you so much for joining us on the table today. If you have a topic that you would like us to consider for a future episode, please email us at thetable at dts.edu. That's thetable at dts.edu. And we hope that you will stay with us and we'll see you next time here on The Table, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well.